Welcome back to The Julie Norman Show, a podcast on politics, ethics, and current affairs. This is actually the last episode for this season, and I couldn't be more delighted to wrap up season two than to have Bob Karp as my guest for today's season finale. Bob is a photographer who I first learned about through just incredible photos that he takes of endangered lemurs at the Duke Lemur Center, which I support and I'm a big fan of. And so I had always assumed that Bob was just always a wildlife photographer, but in fact he has over three decades of photojournalism experience covering everything from Michael Jordan to 9-11, from Hurricane Sandy to Trump rallies and Black Lives Matter protests. And so looking through his photos is like looking through a photo album of America over the course of my lifetime. You know, Bob has been up close and personal with a number of famous faces. He's taken pictures of Joe Biden, Taylor Swift, Bruce Springsteen, Mike Tyson. But the photos of his that interested me the most, besides the lemurs, of course, were the pictures of everyday people in their everyday lives, sometimes in moments of unbridled joy, sometimes in moments of unspeakable sorrow, and sometimes people just going about their day-to-day life. So I wanted to have Bob on the show to talk about the stories behind these photos and talk about what photography captures, but also what it leaves out, what's in the frame, but also what's outside, and how that still holds us even in a time when media has moved into so many different kinds of formats. And I also just wanted to talk with Bob about how he's seen America unfold and change over the past years. And of course, we talk about the lemurs. So I realize it's a bit odd, perhaps, to use a totally audio-based format like a podcast to talk with someone whose life is devoted to a very visual-based medium like photography. But honestly, this is hands down one of my favorite episodes of the podcast. Um, You can check out Bob's photography at bobcarpphotography.com or via the links in the show notes. Um, I'd recommend just checking out some of the pictures as you listen or, or before you listen. This conversation was a really wonderful one for me and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So here's my conversation with Bob Carp. Bob Carp, welcome so much to the podcast. Thank you, thanks so much for having me. There is um, so much that I would love to ask you about, and we were just chatting before recording about your morning spent with the lemurs at the Duke Lemur Center, so we'll make sure we come back to those guys later. But I just wanted to ask you how you first got interested in photography. I think you're from upstate New York. That's the same part of the country my family's from. What got you started in photography, and and how did you go from there? I think it started um, way back in probably my preteen years, I used to go to Syracuse to visit my cousins and my uncle and my aunt. And uh, my uncle was an amazing photographer. He was, he would travel all over the world doing work, kind of like a doctor's beyond borders thing. Mm -hmm. And he would bring his camera and the pictures he came back were just outrageous. And I couldn't wait to go to Syracuse to see my cousins. And then I would hang out with my uncle and he had a bookshelf full of life magazines and the best of life magazines. And I would sit there and I would just look through them. And I just, I can't describe the feeling seeing these images and how they moved me. And there were things from Woodstock or there were things from the Vietnam war. I mean, really diverse um, 
group of, of images, a diverse group of photographers from all over the world, but each one of them hit me in some different way. And somehow I just knew that's what I had to do. I just, at that time, I had no idea how I could make that happen. And, and how did you make it happen? Like, when did you actually pick up a camera and, and start learning the skills and everything that's necessary? I think I was about 16 years old and my parents got me a, a Canon TX, uh, regular old single lens reflex camera, uh, loaded it up with Tri-X black and white film. And I went out to my backyard and the first time I shot was my next door neighbors playing basketball. And when I came back and I had the little dark room downstairs and I processed the film and I printed the photos. And to me, it was the most amazing thing that I had one of my friends shooting a basketball and the basketball's just frozen in midair. And I said, I, I saw that moment. I pushed the shutter at that moment and that moment's gonna be frozen forever. And a hundred years from now, it's, it's going to have burdens, maybe not that one, but something, you know, something that I, I have done maybe in the past 30 years that someone will see in a hundred years and say, that was, that was a hell of a moment. What do you think makes a good photographer? Whenever I've talked to anyone who is interested in hearing me go on and on about photography, I always mention, I mention patience and persistence. I think it's, it's kind of cliche to have an eye um, when I, when I walk down the street, when I, uh, my wife and I are on vacation, everything I happen to see is in a square or, you know, horizontal or vertical. Um, everything I see is in a still image. Um, so I'm constantly composing whenever we're walking down the street, I'll see light hit the sidewalk in a way and I'll just say, stop, hold on. And I'll look at it and I'll be like, no, that's not it. And I'll just keep walking. So things hit me and I just can't, uh, I can't help myself. It's, it's become kind of a compulsion throughout the years. But I, I do think if you want to be a great photographer, um, getting out and going and shooting and shooting and shooting and, and, and you know, getting, getting good at it is one thing, but sometimes you need to sit and watch the sun go across the sky or, or you know, wait for something to happen because whenever Every assignment that I, I think I've ever been on, the one thing that I've always said is something's going to happen. You know, in this hour, in this two hours, four hours, there's going to be a moment and I just have to be ready. I mean, this fascinates me about photography too, that freezing of, of moments. And I just wanted to press a little bit more on that with why, why you think that is something that is so valuable and special like we're in obviously a time now when video is very accessible I'm obviously doing this podcast with you as a purely audio thing what is it about the visual and the frozen visual in particular that's so unique there's a, a photographer named Hardy uh, uh, Henry Cartier-Bresson and he spoke of the decisive moment and that was in photography that is the you know, the highest moment, I mean, something as mundane as a meeting uh, or a sports event, there's always one thing that's gonna happen. It could be the game winning field goal, but whatever that moment, it's, it may or may not present itself. And when it does, you just have to hit the button. 
at that moment because two, 3,000 photos. And there's going to be one that maybe has any kind of importance. The others are great secondary photos, but you want that one photo. You want that the, the one, the touchdown or the field goal or the, the first down that inevitably won the game. It's, uh, and that's exciting because it's like a game. It's, it's every time you go out the door, you're looking for that moment. So each day it keeps me going when I get up, even today, I get up, load my cameras in the car, head out and something's gonna happen. Whether it's at the Lemur Center or it's gonna be at the mall or on the highway or you know something. So you're always looking for something. What I was going to ask you next is you have such a breadth of photography. I mean, your, your sports photography is just absolutely incredible. And then also these pictures of everyday America, of famous people, of wildlife, of social movements, just, you have such a, a breadth that I'm, that I just, I'm, I'm so curious to hear more about. Um, and I guess I want to ask you next about your uh, self-generated project, I think, in Morris County, New Jersey, the 2424 project where you took 24 photos over 24 hours, one image an hour. And it looked like just an absolute whirlwind of um, diners, churches, hospitals, YMCAs, football practices, rock concerts. Um, and you said that somewhere in the course of all that, I think a nun said to you, this will be your legacy. So was yes. she right? And tell me about that project. It's, that's uh, such a great question. I, I've, I think I've yet to see what my legacy is. But when she, she said that to me, it made me, you know, it suddenly makes you think of your mortality. It makes you think of your career. And, you know, what is going to be my legacy? Because it's, it's something that I hadn't thought before that moment. I just, you know, I had a job that I loved. And uh, this is what I wanted to do. And I, I mentioned that to my wife a lot. And she goes, why, why are you so concerned with having a legacy? And I said, I there's something about the history of photography that you, you see beautiful images from the 1800s. It's something Matthew Brady took or something from the 60s, Eddie Adams at, in the Vietnam War. Um, now everyone knows him and everyone knows his images. But, um, you know, a hundred people that you would show that picture to, they would, they would recognize the image. They might not know the photographer, but they remember what that meant, you know, and how that made them feel the first time they saw it. Um, the 24 hour project was something, it came out of maybe my <laughs> arrogance as a, as a photojournalist, um, I'm embarrassed to say. I saw, um, I saw the project first in the Boston Globe and it was same kind of thing, 24, 24 Boston. And I checked it out and it was 24 photos um, all around Boston. But I wanna see what somebody in, in my county is doing at three in the morning. You know, are they, you know, are they praying? Are they doing their laundry? Are they uh, singing in a rock band? So uh, it took me a couple months to kind of schedule. And then I also had escape routes and uh, plan Bs all over the place, just in case things didn't work out. Um, my two favorite moments were I, I was at a um, horse farm and I happened to show up at like 401, 
and I immediately got the picture. It was a goat and a woman playing with a goat. And I was like, that's the picture. I'm good for four o'clock. I could finally go get a cup of coffee. So I actually relaxed for like an hour. Uh, and later that night, I showed up at a bar in Rockaway, New Jersey, and there was a band playing. And I'm like, this is my last night. I'm going to go home, have some pizza. And I walk into the place and my wife is sitting at the bar. And it was just, it was so wonderful because we both of us are people who like to get our sleep. So it was such a nice surprise to see her there. I shot the thing. It was the last, last, uh, last shoot of the project and uh, it was wonderful. So it was, it, it's probably the, the best, the most solid work I've done in 24 hours. I could definitely say that because like I said, I, I, it couldn't just be 24 pictures. They had to, each one ha had to have uh, a decisive moment. Each one had to have some kind of meaning. Um, some of them weren't, you know, weren't great, but sometimes you have to move on. And, and that, that taught me that as well, where, you know, you do have deadlines, you do have, you know, it's newspaper photography and it's sometimes it's down and dirty and listen, you know, you've got an eight o'clock assignment, a 10 o'clock assignment, 1130 assignment across County. You can't sit and make uh, pretty pictures as my old editor from UPI used to say, he goes, you got to get the picture and get out. And I, I know you've also done a lot of photography of more difficult uh, times for people like Superstorm Sandy, um, Hurricane Irene. One, one photo of yours that I just find just so striking is the one of the, the roller coaster, the amusement park ride that I think had fallen into the sea off the Jersey shore when the pier collapsed. And so it's just yeah. this like floating roller coaster, but this like beautiful sunset almost in the background. It's just an absolutely striking photo. But I was just wanted to ask you about how is it to document devastation and um, natural disasters and especially the roller coaster picture was amazing, but I, I was interested in the ones where you're showing people in these situations and how do you photograph people in those very difficult situations while still maintaining their sense of, of dignity rather than, than pity, which, which I think you managed to do in your photos in a really wonderful way. Yeah, that, that's the most difficult thing in the world to do is, you know, to, to shoot first and then kind of ask for permission later. Um, because the moment is the moment, the, the moment that uh, the person you're photographing sees you're there, everything changes. It's, it's not an on, as far as I'm concerned, it's not an honest moment. Um, I've shot, uh, you know, so many difficult uh, things like, you know, the hurricanes, 9-11, uh, of course, was, was you know, uh, some of those moments I'll never forget. Uh, I went down to Montenegro, Colombia after an earthquake in 1999 and that was just unbearable. And it was uh, the stories we heard about people saving um, children. This one gentleman we met told us the story how um, this building had collapsed and there were all these, these children that had died, people had died, but he was going in and he was pulling people out and pulling people out and, this has been going on for hours. And this one little girl said, uh, 
you know, she was in the bottom of this house that had collapsed. And she said, you, you, you've got to save me. I'm here. And he said, I can't do it. I don't, I don't have the strength. I don't have the strength. And she said, you know, you have to, I'm here. You have to save me. And to hear these first person accounts while you're sitting in the middle of these ruins um, and to see this beautiful little girl's face, I think she was 11 years old and it took her maybe three or four days before she let me take her picture. She had, uh, her eye was bloody. She had bandages all over her head. And every day we'd see her in the main street. And, uh, you know, I asked, I said, could I get your picture? And she was like, no, I just, not today, not today. And then three days later, she said, okay, today's, you can take my picture. And, uh, and it was important because it, it really shows in one image, what the pain and that this had caused. And on the other side of that, the people back in Morristown, and I was in a restaurant, an Italian restaurant in downtown Morristown. And the, uh, this, the article had gotten such a reputation throughout town that when one of the kitchen workers had heard through the waiter or through the somebody, through the somebody that I was at the restaurant, he came out and he said, he started thanking me like with tears in his eyes. And he said, uh, we're from Montenegro and we had no idea if my family was dead or alive. And then we saw your picture of my grandmother in, in the daily record and we realized she was fine. So they couldn't get in touch with anybody, but this was their lifeline was our newspaper. Our, our, our mantra is to be local, 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 but there's a lot of things outside Morris County or Sussex County that affect the local people and the citizens that, that need to be stories that need to be told mm -hmm. and pictures that need to be made. Um, and you mentioned 9-11 too, and I wanted to ask you about photographing that. And were, were you in the city when 9-11 happened or did you go there after the attacks? Uh, I was at the library returning a book. I came out and the this young guy coming in said, uh, I mean, he just looked ashen. And he said, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center. And I was like, wow. So I jumped in my car. I'm about uh, five minutes from work. I think we're probably 25 miles uh, west of Manhattan. So you could see uh, the World Trade Center from Morris County. So I said, okay, you know, there's, there might be something to cover here. And uh, so I start driving into uh, work and right away I hear another plane has hit the second tower. So then obviously everybody knew that this wasn't an accident and uh, so I went to what I knew to be the highest place in Morris County was this condo complex that overlooks everything. And so I go and I park my car and I come out and uh, you look out and you just see the smoke rising from Manhattan, from Twinway in Arable. So um, the rest of the day, we just did everything local. Again, local, local, local. We needed to cover the story knowing that there were going to be Morris County residents that were affected by this. Um, I had the next week, week or so off of vacation 
So I, uh, I took that time and I just went into Manhattan every day, um, took the train in, and then I usually walked down from Penn Station down to Ground Zero. And uh, it was just, you know, it, it's something that's so familiar um, that suddenly isn't. Um, you know, you see, you know, you go into Manhattan and you look for the World Trade Center, so you know how to go south. And uh, it's just not there. And when you drive up the turnpike, I couldn't to see why the sky was so empty. It just didn't, it sometimes doesn't compute. But um, I remember me being in on the train one morning and she saw all my equipment and she said, oh, I just came in from Florida. You look like somebody who knows something. Uh, my son is a firefighter and, you know, he's, he was down at ground zero. I hadn't heard from him. What do you know? And it's, it, and, you know, we had heard things that there were, there were tapping, things like that. Um, which ultimately it was the um, ammunition from the police because of the heat that was going off. So mm. that's what people thought was the tapping. So um, I told I told the woman I I don't know I I couldn't I couldn't tell you. Um, please stay hopeful. Um, and I asked her for her son's name and I wrote it down on a business card. And I came home and I put it on my bulletin board. And uh, every day I looked in the newspaper, the New York Times, New York Post. And maybe it was a month, two months later, I finally saw her son. That they had found his remains. Mm. And it's just unbearable. Um, and you, you just, I remember walking back from ground zero to the Penn Station to come back home every day. And it was just palpable you just it just I'd never seen New York like that and I said I wish I could just close my eyes and just fast forward five, five years because I can't take this anymore because it's it's just the sadness mm -hmm. was just like a blanket all over everyone and uh, it's you know now it's going on 19 20 years now which is it's absolutely hard to believe you had another story that I wanted to ask you about um, that you wrote about in your blog, which is a really wonderful blog as well. And it was about a young man, Tony, I think, who joined the Marines shortly after 9-11. And you photographed him, um, I guess, in, uh, in, in training camp, essentially, and then ended up finding out much later that, that he had taken his own life. And I was just wondering if you could share a little about that story and what it's like to form relationships with, I guess, your subjects, so to speak, uh, but the stories that aren't in the photos and how that affects you as a photographer. Yeah, this was, uh, you know, one of those local projects, but uh, I can't remember the first place I met uh, Tony, but um, it was pretty much just to get kind of a wide view of the Marines. Uh, I believe it was right after the war started and we were just seeing, you know, how this worked and to follow a local recruit. And he was just, uh, he, uh, I guess was, you know, in need of some direction. So he picked the Marines and then he came out and it turns out that this was his thing. He was a great Marine. He became a great young man. He became a great husband and a great father. And then years later, you, you hear the aftermath of something that you had covered 
uh, years, years, years ago. Um, and it's unbearable because once you have that image, once you have that, once you've shaken his hand, once you've kind of touched his family and they've touched you, there's really, there, I mean, there's really no recovering from it. Um, there's one, probably the most difficult and the most rewarding, it's in, you can't separate the two, sadly, is um, my friend Elaine Ash. She and I did a story on a woman and she had, she had been trying to get pregnant for, uh, for years and years. And through the pregnancy, she got diagnosed with stage four uh, lung cancer. Mm. And the doctor said, well, you know, we're, we've got to make these treatments. And so you're going to have to have an abortion. And she said, I'm, I'm not aborting this child. I'm keeping my child. So that's the moment that we started following them. And it became, you know, we, we, I remember the first day uh, we sat down with them and, uh, you know, we said, this is what we want to do. And we'd like this kind of access and whatever you're up for, we, you know, we're, we're, we want to be respectful. And, uh, you know, then we almost became invisible because we were just friends. And, you know, it, it's, there's a lot to be said for the journalists that can separate themselves from their subject. Um, I frankly have never been able to do that. Um, it's just, you know, the, my only separation is the camera. Um, but outside of that, it's, uh, you know, we went to concerts together. We'd go for pizza on Thursday nights. And, uh, and then uh, I was in the, the delivery room for the baby and I became Uncle Bob. So all this stuff just happens and you uh, photograph it and, um, and thinking that maybe you might have made a positive difference somehow just by your support, just by your love, um, because we were there when, when a lot of other people weren't mm -hmm. um, just because we were doing our jobs. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's... Uh, I don't know. I don't, you know, I, I try to, I try to look at things philosophically sometimes. And then sometimes I just want to shut off my brain and say, you can't think too deeply because it's, it's, you know, if you really think about uh, some of the things you've seen, maybe, you know, you might not recover. Yeah. Uh, and I know I've, I've, you know, there's been so many photojournalists before me. Uh, that have just the things they've seen is mm -hmm. just, you know, heartbreaking, heartbreaking. You're listening to The Julie Norman Show. We've been talking a lot about some of the personal photos that you've taken. I was interested too in some of the photos you've taken of different movements and marches, like the women's marches, March for Our Lives, uh, Black Lives Matter, pro-life rallies, Trump rallies, Biden rallies. What is it like for you covering these events that are a bit more impersonal perhaps, but you find some personal moments in them? And I guess what matters to you most in these shoots, like does it make a difference to you if you agree with the cause or not, or is it more about uh, something else. I'm just curious what it's like to photograph in those uh, in those situations. 
that that's difficult because everybody's got their own ethical line when it comes to uh, covering these events. How involved, you know, it's one thing getting involved in somebody's life personally. It's another thing going to a movement. Um, I always, my mantra has always been, and I get this from a movie. Um, I don't take sides, I take pictures. And uh, for Donald Trump took office, things were pretty easy. And maybe it was because I was in Morris County, it's a, a different world. But we would go to events, uh, civil rights events, immigration, uh, immigrant rights events, and you'd be welcomed with open arms um, by the organizers, by the police, everybody would just, thank you for being here. They didn't know my politics, I'm sure they assumed, but you know, you, you try to keep, you know, you try to keep yourself neutral, but there's times after came down south and it was a complete 180. Um, and my wife, I remember the first Confederate flag rally I went to when I came down south, listen, the racists down here are much different than the racists up in New Jersey. So you got to watch your back. And I said, oh, I said, come on, everybody's racists are the same all over, just like they are up in New Jersey. I said, I'll be fine. And you go there and I see these guys waving Confederate flags around. And for somebody from the North, from New York State, from New Jersey, this isn't something we ever sit, saw ever as journalists, as growing up, you know, we, you know, we're from the North. So until these people kind of see you and learn your name and start calling you out by your religion or by your color or by whatever kind of hateful thoughts they have in their head. And it's like, this is, you know, they're not, they're serious about this. It's, it's, these are not play actors. Um, and at the same time, I tried to introduce myself to the, uh, the organizer of this event. And she was like, we don't want you here. We don't want you on our campus. What you're doing is platforming white supremacy. We don't want you here. You're not welcome. And I said, I, hold it. I said, I'm a journalist. I'm neutral. I'm, you know, you know, I'm not going to tell her I'm, I agree with their point of view, but you know, I'm a journalist. And I said, well, I'm staying. Uh, and at the same time, the police seemed to side very much with the national white nationalists, almost without exception. Mm. Um, and that was really disturbing to me because whether it was BLM, uh, any kind of march, it was always the cops against the kids, cops against the marchers. I mean, there was uh, one rally in Graham, North Carolina, and the, the sheriff's officers went to the white supremacists and they said, you guys might want to move along a little bit because we're going to be hitting these kids with tear gas. And sure enough, the peaceful protesters, they hit them with tear gas and they arrested them. And uh, I wasn't there for that one, but that made national news. And it was just, um, the politics are much different down here. And uh, the, the way people look at journalists is much different here. Now, again, 
I don't know if it was different four years ago. I've covered Biden events and I've covered Trump events uh, in the past year, and they couldn't be more white and black, if you excuse the term. They, uh, I went to one event and the looks you got from people and under the breath, you know, comment about the me. Uh, and then you go to a Biden event, masks, and they make sure you've got masks. Every Black Lives Matter event I've ever gone to, everybody before the march, the organizers said, mask up. Everybody has to have a mask on. And uh, there were, I mean, there were some horrible times in Raleigh where they, they um, it was after uh, George Floyd was killed and they marched through downtown Raleigh. And it, of course, again, it wasn't all the, the marchers the certain ones that wanted to make trouble, it was horrible. And, and they, I mean, I took my wife down a couple of days later and you're talking blocks and blocks and blocks of every single uh, window front with busted glass mm. and spray paint. And it was horrible. That's, and I don't think anybody would forgive that on either side. How do you see America today? Are you hopeful? Um, I'm always hopeful. Um, it's, I mean, I'm also a little naive. I think I see the kind of people that I surround myself with and we're all very kind, loving human beings. And we would do anything for these people. Um, and they would do anything for us. I was at a black letter rally in Wilmington when, um, which was across the river from Donald Trump visiting uh, a battleship down there in Wilmington, North Carolina. And there were, you know, there's the Black Lives Matter people and there's the Trump people and they're yelling back and forth at each other. And, you know, I see this uh, guy with a Trump hat and he's got these two dogs and it must've been a hundred degrees that day. It was wicked. And they, all three of them were dying. And I, I went to my car and I had a whole bunch of water. So I just grabbed a bunch of water and I give him, I said, this is for you. This is for your dogs. And we talked like two human beings. We, we, you know, I, I don't agree probably with anything politically, but we could agree on dogs. We both love dogs. So we talked about dogs. It's, it's sad. Uh, and I've lost a couple friends in this time because I have probably, you know, yapped a little too much on Twitter about, my, my feelings when maybe I should keep them to myself as a journalist. But, and I said to one of my, my very, very, very good friend. And I said, uh, I said, look, I said, we can, we can talk about everything in the world except politics. And I said, that's the way we're going to uh, keep a friendship. But I said, if you, if you want to, you know, every time I post something on Facebook, if you have to give me a point counterpoint, I said, I can't do that because I'm not putting things up there for a debate. You know, it's, uh, it's, you know, these are just my thoughts to share with people that will give me some form of comfort. So what my friends are going to say, I understand how you're feeling, not you're crazy. This is not, you know, my America. Mm -hmm. um, and it's too bad because I think as a nation, we've got so much more in common than we, than our differences, but um, but like I said, I'm hopeful. I, I hope we can turn this around because I think the people, you know, everything with me is, is, you know, 
I think maybe the opposite of some, but it's, it's inclusion, it's love. It's, I don't judge people by what they look like or where they're from. I, I have a heart because I know, um, you know, my, my wife coming from Brazil and coming here and speaking with an accent and knowing that, um, it, and it breaks my heart because the other day when she, you know, we, we went to get some medical records and, and I said, do you want me to wait in the car? Do you want me to come with you? And she said, no, I, I need a white man to come with me just in case, because sometimes people hear an accent and they don't know she's got a PhD in chemical engineering. They don't know she came here with nothing mm -hmm. and got her master's and her PhD and what it would an insanely, uh, beautiful mind she's got they just see someone with brown skin and an accent and, and immediately they form a judgment and that's it's something I've never done in my life and uh you know my parents never taught me that it's just that's the way they were they never you know looked at people other than you know if somebody treats you well then then you treat them well back and uh you know, so when I go to some of these events and, you know, you get pushed around a little bit uh, by either side, um, there was, <laughs> there was an interesting, it, it is interesting coming from New Jersey and, and seeing how some people react to that. When I was at the Black Lives Matter uh, rally where Trump was, um, I was taking pictures and that's a new thing now where people are like, you can't show our faces, mm. don't show our faces. And you know, you can't sit there and debate with them what, you know, why, why you're there, what journalism is about, why, you know, it's important to have faces there, even about, you know, the rights of privacy in public. I mean, I don't want to sit there and have a debate. I'm there to do my job. You're there to protest. So you do your thing, I'll do my thing. And so this young woman, she, she must have been 18 or 19. Every time I picked up my camera, she'd, you know, grab my camera. Mm. And I said, look, you really can't do that. You know, I, I said, I've been around the world and I said, I've had guns pointed at me. I've had bad things happen. I've always gotten a picture. And I said, you're not going to prevent me from getting a picture. So I said, please just be respectful to me. Like I'm being respectful to you. And I put my camera up and she grabbed my camera and I had my press card hanging around my neck. And on one side, I had my North Carolina press card but I always kept my, my New Jersey press card on the other side, just out of, you know, it's just in the same holder. And it happened to be flopped over and this guy sees it and he leans, he's an older guy and he leans over to her and he whispers in her ear, this guy's from New Jersey. I think you better leave him alone. And she, <laughs> and she just backed off. She just, hey, do whatever you want, shoot whatever you want. So I think they all think we're Tony Soprano or something, but I, <laughs> That's amazing. I, you know, if that's what, you know, and it, it's always, you know, it's also what you do to get the picture. Um, if that's what it takes to get the picture, um, honestly, uh, that'll get them to ignore you. And, and I've done that all the time. You know, if, if I am with people and what do you want me to do? Just pretend I'm not here. I'm not even here. Mm -hmm. In the first couple of pictures, they might, you know, be kind of cognizant of your camera. After a while, they just, they ignore you. And that's mm -hmm. when you get a moment. Well, 
I think I could ask you about so many things, but to end on a relatively hopeful note, um, one of the great things about living in North Carolina is you're very close to the Duke Lemur Center. And I know yes. you've been spending a lot of time photographing those wonderful animals who I have a lot of love for too. So can you tell me about how you got started with the lemurs and what that has been like for you? That, uh, this has been one of the, the biggest blessings of my life. Um, when we moved down here, my wife moved down about six months before I did. She got a job uh, in the Triangle area, and I was still working up in New Jersey trying to sell our house. And um, not too much long after, I, I got a buyout offer, which, you know, was, is, you know, like right on time. Perfect. Uh, so after we moved down to North Carolina, um, I was pretty much retired. That's what, you know, I was out of a job. My wife makes a wonderful living. So she said, you're retired now. I just don't want you sitting on the couch. So if you have to work at Home Depot, if you want to drive an Uber, just stay busy. I was like, all right. And she said, I understand you're never going to get work down here right away because you're new. Nobody knows you. Um, so just stay busy. And I just... You know, my, my mom has always had always told me her biggest thing with me whenever I go through changes, Robert, you always have to reinvent yourself. Whatever happens in your life, something goes bad, something goes good. Keep reinventing yourself. Always change. Never stop. And I came down here and I just started making phone calls and people started calling me back. They're like, we love your work. Would you like to take pictures for us? I'm like, yeah, I, you know. Nothing against Home Depot, which I'm completely unqualified for, but I can't take pictures. So if you want me to take pictures and you're going to pay me, that was fine. If you don't want to pay me, that's fine too. So um, I wanted to do some volunteer work, especially with animals uh, at a rescue. And I looked at a couple of rescues around the area, um, wonderful rescues. There's a tiger rescue out in Pittsburgh. That's just a beautiful place. And they do wonderful work there. And um I just, I don't, I was Googling something and Duke Lemur Center popped up and I said, Duke Lemur Center. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool. They probably have like half a dozen lemurs and I can go and see lemurs. So I, I wrote the um, um, uh, one of the directors and I, I said, hey, I'm, I, I'm Bob. And it's always the same thing. I'm Bob. I'm a photographer. I like to come take some pictures of your lemurs. Uh, and she said, yeah, why don't you come on by and we'll you know, give you a tour and see what we can do. And it, it happened to be some wonderful timing because they have, they have an amazing photographer named David Herring. And he's been there for 37 years, I believe. And he just retired. And I mean, so this guy's seen everything. I mean, that's the, his body of work is unbelievable to be, uh, you know, to be at that place for so long and the things he's seen. So to kind of come in uh, after him and he still, he still works there. Uh, he volunteers like me once a week. Uh, but I went to the place and I see it. It's just acres and acres and acres of open forest. And, uh, Sarah to be in there and she's like, okay, well, this is, you know, it's called an NHE, uh, natural habitat enclosure. And I think they've got nine of them all together. 
and she takes me through and there's just lemurs all over every kind of lemur you, you can imagine. I think they've got 20 species if I'm not mistaken, but about 200 altogether. And the, the work they do is so important um, knowing the, you know, how, how badly things are going in, in Madagascar, which is our only home out Durham, North Carolina. And uh, if you ever did, if they ever were to go extinct in Madagascar, they have this um, cushion of, of lemurs that they could do to reintroduce. Um, but to be there, um, and today we, we talked briefly before we came on, um, Felix is a, a brand new uh, baby lemur. He's 13 weeks old, uh, born to Lupi and my favorite Shafak, Gabe, who uh, I've known since I've, I've been working there. Uh, and it's just absolutely astounding, just the, the beauty of, of nature and uh, to see these animals in their, their you know, natural habitat, which is, happens to be Durham, North Carolina, but um, they're studied and they're, uh, they're cared for and they're loved. Um, it's just one of the, the most magical places in the world. And I can't wait till they reopen again to the public because it's, um, it's really just people, you know, my friends, especially, you know, when they see my lemur pictures, they, uh, they're like, wow, you really found something there. Um, and not to mention they're learning all these things about lemurs that they never knew before. So it's kind of fun being kind of a little conduit to kind of, uh, to my friends to introduce, you know, uh, these, these beautiful creatures. And, uh, but you talk about uh, being hopeful about our future. Um, sometimes you have to look away from human beings and that, that's where you'll get your hope. It's true. We, we, all, we all take a lot of hope and just joy from seeing all, all the pictures of the lemurs and uh, your other photos as well, but the lemur ones are, are certainly a joy to see. So, um, well, on that note, I'll, I'll start wrapping it up where we usually end the podcast to ask um, any book recommendations that you might have or books or photographs that have made an impact on you. Um, let us now praise famous men um, with uh, uh, A.G. and my favorite, uh, uh, my favorite photographer, Walker Evans. Um, and it was a project they did during the Dust Bowl it was, um, they were hired by Fortune Magazine. And it was, it was something during the Farm uh, Security Administration that the government had sponsored, but they wanted to document this, this area of the South and what the, uh, you know, the problems of the Dust Bowl, problems of the depression. And these guys were journalists. They, they weren't writing a novel. And to have, and it, it, I, I read it maybe 20 years ago when I was working on another project that was kind of parallel with this. Um, and we're, Lorraine and I were looking at poverty in Morris County. And I thought this was a great book to, to kind of get me inspired and to see the kind of work they did. Um, and, you know, 70 years later, it's still kind of important book. It's just, that's probably the, the book that has affected me most in my career because it inspired me to, to do uh, what I'm doing. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And I'd love to have you on again sometime to hear more of your stories. It was really just such a pleasure. Oh, I love Julie. Thanks so much for having me. And, and this was really uh, so flattering and, and, and a lot of fun. Thank you once again to Bob Karp. You can check out Bob's photography at bobkarpphotography.com or follow him on Twitter at bobkarpdr. You have been listening to The Julie Norman Show. Again, this is the last JNS for the season, but we'll be back soon with more good conversations. So in the meantime, I hope that you'll catch up on past episodes, recommend the podcast to friends, and give the show a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions, feedback, good jokes, or guest recommendations for next season, you can always email me at norman.julie at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter at drjulienorman2. Thanks as ever for listening. Take care, stay well, and see you next season.